Welcome to episode number 19 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring Oscar-nominated editor Billy Weber. We'll discuss his many collaborations with director Terrence Malick, which includes Badlands, Days of Heaven, The Thin Red Line, and The Tree of Life. Also, his many collaborations with director Martin Brest, which includes Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run, and Geely. His work with director, screenwriter, and actor Warren Beatty on the film Bullworth. And his many collaborations with director Tony Scott, which includes Beverly Hills Cop 2, Days of Thunder, and Top Gun. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And you can follow us on Twitter for the latest updates at jogroad. And now we join our conversation with editor Billy Weber as he discusses his collaborations with director Terrence Malick. I wanted to first discuss uh, your work with Terrence Malick, which uh, went from Badlands, Days of Heaven, uh, The Thin Red Line, and Tree of Life. And what's interesting about Terrence Malick is that he tells a story differently than I think from any other filmmaker. And, you know, his scenes don't really have traditional beginning, middle, and end. And he, from what I understand, sort of veers away from the script somewhat when he's shooting. Uh, so as far as the editing process goes with Terrence Malick, do you feel like you're constructing uh, a brand new narrative from the original script when you start going into post? Well, um, you know, Badlands, uh, Badlands was pretty much the way it was written. Badlands was the script and, um, we didn't veer too far away from that at all. Uh, Even the voiceover was written in the script for Badlands and you know we made changes in it but for a lot of it it was the way he wrote it in the script and um, and so in that case we didn't really change structure or, or do anything like that in the case of um, Days of Heaven which was his next movie uh, we and that one was different because we, in the course of editing, we decided that it seemed to be working better when we took dialogue out. It was more interesting um, with the four characters. Uh, and uh, so that's what started that process. And when we did that, we realized we were going to have to try and tell the story uh, with less dialogue and using voiceover, which was never intended for the movie uh, originally. And um, we had to kind of create the style of the voiceover, and we didn't know exactly what to do with that, which as a result made that, that we took longer to finish uh, Days of Heaven. So there was and a... Uh... Oh, so there was sort of a voiceover script that was written while you were editing then? Yes. Well, actually, it came probably maybe two-thirds of the way through the process. We we made a decision to do the voiceover about, uh, oh, halfway through, let's say, the process. And when we did that, originally we thought, well, maybe we'll... Uh, do it with as a conversation between uh, Linda Manns, 
And there, I don't know how well you remember the movie, but there was another young character, young woman in it that worked as part of the migrant farm workers with Linda that we meet very early on. And uh, the, the name of the young actress was Jackie Schultes. And, uh, and we decided maybe we, oh, and the, the movie ends with her and Linda going off the very last scene. Uh, we run into Jackie again. And uh, so what we decided, maybe we should try a conversation between Linda and Jack, and we'll start it when we first meet them, or right after that scene. And uh, because they have a conversation as they walk through a wheat field together. And we'd start the voiceover there, but then we decided, no, and Jackie was a wonderful actress. Uh, uh, and uh, so we decided we'd try that, and so we did. We did some preliminary recordings of the two of them talking. It just it felt like a conversational aspect of it wasn't going to last for us. It wouldn't make it through the whole movie. So uh, we didn't, we ended up dropping that idea and just doing it with Linda. And uh, the way we came about with the style with Linda was Terry had written a lot of voiceover for Linda to record, and we had recorded a lot of it. And some of it worked, and some of it wasn't as successful as we hoped, And but we kept on recording, and Linda, who was living in New York at the time, was only out in Los Angeles with us for a short time, so we had to try and uh, do a lot of recording at that one of her visits to L.A., and uh, we did it, and it wasn't working out great. I, actually told this story uh, before uh, for different uh, uh, people have asked me about this aspect of the movie. And uh, Linda was living at the time with the family of one of my assistants. That She was not living. While she was in L.A., she was staying at their house. And the wife, my assistant's wife, was a very... Um, uh, not very religious, but a religious person, and she would read to her children at night from different parts of the Bible. And Linda was staying there. And one night, uh, the, the mother, uh, my sister's wife, read to the kids from, I think it's the book of Revelations. Uh, and the next night, Linda was going to record voiceover for us. And we were doing it at Terry's house just to save money. We, were, we had a Niagara recorder at the house that so we could record it there. We didn't have to rent a recording stage to do it. And we were a low-budget movie. And it was going to be easier. So uh, uh, we had someone drive Linda to Terry's house. And he was waiting for her. And she came in the house. And he was setting up to record. And she said, uh, oh, Terry, uh, you got to hear what Colleen read to us last night. I got to tell you this. And Terry basically said, Linda, it's really late. I want to get this done. You're leaving town tomorrow. I really don't have time to talk about that. Now, no, 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 Terry, Terry, you got to hear this. You got to hear what Colleen, what she read to me last night. And Terry said, no, Linda, come on. We have so much work to do. I just don't have time. No, no, no. You've got to hear it. You've got to hear it. And finally, he just gave in and said, okay, fine. What is it? And Linda told Terry 
her version of the book of Revelations. And Terry called me, I was still at work, called me around 11 o'clock at night and said, it's amazing what's going on. You gotta get me some more quarter inch tape here. I'll tell you later what it is, but it's fantastic. And that's when he realized that Linda, her own version of things was seemed to be really an interesting way to go. And so what you, a lot of what you hear in the movie is inspired by Terry showing Linda a section of the movie and then turning it off and saying, okay, so tell me what just happened. What did we just see? Wow. It's incredible. It really, was, uh... Well, this farmer, he didn't get any, he didn't get sicker. He didn't get better. He just stayed the same. That line's in the movie. That's Linda doing that. That's her view of what happened. And so a lot of the voiceover is like that. Uh, there's a scene deep into the movie when Sam Shepard sees Brooke Adams and uh, Richard Gere behind a curtain outside of the house when they're having dinner with a flying circus that arrived at the farm. And he sees their shadows through the curtain and they look like they're laughing together or maybe they're almost kissing, but they're not. And he gets all upset when he sees that image and he goes up to his bathroom and he smashes a bunch of medicine that he's taking because he is very sick. And you hear Linda's voice over saying something like, he felt like snakes were crawling down into, into the insides of him. That's, a, that's Linda telling us about the book of Revelations. Right. And so we have stuff like that throughout the movie, and that's when we realize the style of the, that the voiceover should be. Did, uh, throughout the other films that you worked on with Terrence Malick, uh, which included The Tree of Life and The Thin Red Line, did you see that type of collaboration continue where he would, you know, look to actors or look to other people around his sphere to really enhance uh, what he was making? He did a little. Uh, what, what, what we realized in Days of Heaven was one of the keys was to get the actors to talk about the movie to somehow get them to talk about what they had seen. So, or knowing that that's what we wanted, maybe he could even write that kind of dialogue, which in Thin Red Line we did. And so he did do that. We recorded a lot of uh, voiceover um, in Thin Red Line, especially because we tried a lot of different people doing voiceover, and some of it we used, some of it we didn't. But the actors who came in to do it, some of them aren't even in the movie. Uh, we, we just would try different voices that we thought really sounded good and, and also, you know, incredibly great actors who Terry maybe knew or had a relationship with. We asked them to come in. So we recorded a lot of different people doing different versions of lines that he had written. And we recorded a tremendous amount of voiceover. And then we used what we thought worked the best. And in most cases, even in the case of Days of Heaven, um, you really end up using very little, but what you do use 
hopefully is memorable and and works in the movie. So I think in Days of Heaven, there might be 15 minutes of voiceover altogether if you tied it all together. But we probably recorded 60 hours. Wow. But it's really about uh, taking all of that material and then just finding where you can put little bits in and, you know, where... It's a long time. Yeah. Sometimes we would take one line and run it over and over, like on a loop, over a 10-minute section of the movie and see if it falls anywhere that works well. Uh, How important in Days of Heaven uh, was conceiving of Ennio Morricone's music score? Because you you can almost not imagine the movie without it, and it really really just puts you into the atmosphere. I'll tell you an interesting story about that. We had, had, uh, you know, most movies use temp music, temporary music, to watch, to to give a feeling of the film and as they watch it, and we did that. and then we ended up using a lot of Morricone music. And not all Morricone, we used different people's music, but we definitely used Morricone music uh, here and there throughout the movie. And when we approached uh, Ennio to do the movie, he was very open to it and said, but I would like it if you came here to Italy because I don't like to travel that much and it would be easier for me to do it. And, and uh, so that's what we ended up doing, and we sent him a version of the movie that used his music in several different places in the movie. So he got an idea of what we were looking for. And then Terry went to Italy, and Morcone recorded a full score in Italy for the movie. And he said to Terry, you can do anything you want with this music. You can move it anywhere you want in the movie. I only ask one favor of you. The piece of music I wrote for the wheat fire, I ask you, please don't move that. So that's what we did. We moved every single piece of music that he wrote for the movie to different places, except the wheat fire. We kept that right where he wrote it for. But every other piece in the music, we moved. And to different places in the movie, places that he had not written it for. That's incredible. You you, uh, yeah. you really can't imagine that movie without that music score. It's, uh, right, I know. It, it really ended up working great. So important. Uh, I was wondering, too, with the, with the Tree of Life, uh, the, the film... The, what's interesting about it is there aren't sort of typical scenes that you would see in a normal movie. It has this sort of memory or uh, kind of elusive quality to it. Um, was there a lot of discovery when you were putting it together in terms of how scenes were to become and how to use voiceover? Well, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, in the case of Tree of Life, shot so many scenes that did not get in the movie. Um, he just didn't know exactly what he wanted to put in the movie. He just knew he wanted to write, he wanted to shoot this narrative story about a family. And uh, and he wrote it, but then once he started shooting, he would rewrite and have the actors improv scenes. And uh, he'd come up constantly with new scenes while shooting. And... Uh, not knowing how we were going to use them or necessarily even where. Uh, 
but we knew we had this narrative story about this family growing up, uh, growing together, and uh, and way more scenes than we knew we could put in the movie. So, uh, and someday there's going to be a version of the movie that comes out that has more scenes. It will come out for home video, you know, on DVD that has more scenes in it than what were in the original theatrical version. Really? So it would be uh, sort of a longer cut of the movie? Yeah, yeah. What's uh, interesting, too, yeah. about uh, about those scenes is that, uh, you know, dialogue isn't used, you know, the, the actors aren't speaking. It's it's mostly with, it's almost sort of all voiceover. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. wall-to-wall voiceover completely. Yeah. Um, and... That, you know, all of, all, it, let me see, how do I say this the best way? All of, everything Terry has done since Days of Heaven has been influenced about by what we did on Days of Heaven. Um, you know, if you compare Badlands to everything else he's done, Badlands is much more of a straightforward story, even though, when it came out, it probably wasn't viewed that way. But if you compare it to now Days of Heaven, Sin, Red Line, uh, New World, Tree of Life, To the Wonder, you you can really sense a uh, personal uh, progression, almost like a narr- personal narrative of Terry's going through those. They all feel like they're from the same person. And it's what we learned on Days of Heaven. Yeah. All it's based a, on that. It's a, his distinct uh, storytelling style, which, uh, you know, he can only grasp. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, too, one of my favorite movies is, uh, especially from Warren Beatty, you know, Warren Beatty has only directed, I think, four films, but one of my favorites is Bullworth which yeah. I think is such an incredible political satire, and I hope people continue to rediscover. Uh, I was wondering sort of your experience working with Warren Beatty on that film and uh, how that process probably differed drastically from working with someone like uh, Terrence Malick. Well, they are. You know, Warren is, 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 is uh, I don't know, he's a much more literal person. Uh, he's incredibly smart and very... Uh, uh, serious about his, you know, he wants to really make good movies all of the time, and that's really his his only agenda is to make the best version of what he's doing, and and he's very uh, uh, um, intent on that and serious about it, and hardworking, and uh, he wants to spend the time to make the best version and very collaborative and uh you know it's a pleasure working with him as it is a pleasure working with jerry you know i mean they and and they're friends also so as i the way i met warren through jerry um and uh it's just uh it's great when you get an opportunity to work with people that are you know that really take movies as serious art forms and, and that's the way they approach it so uh even though they're different they are. They approach it with the same uh, uh, mental uh, uh, attitude about it. 
Yeah, and I believe in, in that film as well, there was also a, a music score by Ennio Morricone. There certainly was. <laughs> which, uh, which I think is also one of my, one of my favorite uh, you know, movie music scores, I think, from that film, because you have the rap music and you know, all the sort of political satire that's going on, but then there are these patches of the music score that come in, and it's really powerful when it hits. Right, because his, he's got this, uh, what's, when the movie starts, it starts with that, and, uh, and you understand what his motivation is and his conflict, and so, um, and that never goes away because that's what it's about, so yeah. it's what? very effective. And I mean, Morricone is a brilliant composer, so, uh, and I think he's actually done more movie scores than any living, than any composer ever, so. Was uh, was there a lot of improvisation on Bullworth? That's something that I, I'm not sure if that's true or not. But on the uh, on the set, was it were a lot of the scenes sort of um, put together by the actors in a way? Or well, sometimes, yeah, definitely yeah. sometimes. Uh, um, I mean, I remember one specifically when it's a scene between Oliver Platt and Larry King, and Oliver was improvising like crazy, and he was fantastic. So. Uh, uh, I remember that one sticks out in my mind all the time. Um, but Warren is very open to that, you know, because Warren's an actor. So, you know, he and he trained, you know, with Stella Adler and Ilya Kazan and, you know, really actors, directors. And so, uh, um, so he had, you know, wonderful uh, uh, legacy to draw on, and, uh, and, and especially as an actor. So it's been great. Yeah, definitely, uh, you know, really funny performance. Uh, you know, you never think of Warren Beatty as a comedic actor, but when you see that film, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, hilarious. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was wondering, too, about your work with Martin Brest. And uh, there was actually recently an article, uh, I think it was for Playboy, where uh, the saw journalist. Oh, I'm sorry? I saw it. I saw it. Oh, you did? Yeah, the, yeah. I, he was trying to sort of. Trying to uh, find Martin Brest or sort of um, rediscover his work in a way and talk to different collaborators. Uh, and I think it's interesting that, you know, Martin Brest, you know, you look at Beverly Hills Cop, uh, Midnight Run, uh, the first feature he did going in style. Um, you know, I think he really does have a distinctive voice and, and brings so much to his work, uh, Scent of a Woman, you know, and they, they had major cultural impact. Uh, so I was sort of wondering about. Uh, your work with Martin Brest and uh, working on, you know, Beverly Hills Cop and Midnight Run. And uh, also, I also worked on Gigli. And, and Gigli, also, yeah. uh, He also produced the movie that I directed. So um, so we're good friends, and uh, it's a, I love working with Marty. Um, and we've always gotten along fantastically well. So uh, and we're still friends. And... Um, and so uh, it's fun. It's just tremendous fun working with him. Uh, it's also very intense. Uh, he's also, you know, very focused and uh, knows what he wants. And um, and if he can have an actor that's good at improvising, he definitely wants them to do it. Uh, Midnight Run, uh, De Niro and Grodin were phenomenal together. And... Uh, and uh, a pleasure to uh, to edit uh, that that movie was a pleasure to edit um, because every I mean we knew immediately all the scenes that were coming in they were so good and uh, and 
neither one had ever been in a movie like that. It was De Niro's first comedy, and um, and he was nervous about it, and and he was brilliant all the time in it. Uh, I think they had great he, chemistry too, uh, De Niro and Grodin. They were a yeah, great team together. Yeah, phenomenal, and uh, and uh, and so you know we always felt that this the movie was terrific. We loved it. From the beginning, but you know, it never. It, you know, now it's become, in a way, like a huge cult favorite. Whenever people talk about it, they love it. But when it came out, it wasn't a big financial success at all. And um, and it was interesting. We never. I could never figure out quite why, because I find it a very pleasurable movie to watch and uh, and fun and. Um, and I have met actors along the way who can quote the uh, the dialogue from the movie verbatim, every line. Um, they love it, and so it was interesting. It's got a great following, but it just didn't it didn't catch on when it came out. It was so interesting. Mm-hmm. I wish that it had because it was a pleasure to edit, and and uh, uh, it was such a good movie. I love it. I love it. Yeah, and in Beverly Hills Cop uh, as well, I believe Martin Brest had used a lot of improvisation among the actors. Uh, I think even like the the big scene with Bronson Pinchot and Eddie Murphy in the art gallery, uh, I think believe that was mostly improvised. Is that right? Yeah, Bronson came up with a tremendous amount of that himself. Plus, as did Eddie. And then also, there's other scenes throughout the movie where Eddie would just come up with stuff on his own. Uh, and Marty was totally open. He would just say to Eddie, no, 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 what would you say here? What are you going to say? And, uh, and Marty would just have to keep himself from laughing um, during it. But yeah, we, he did definitely, in both uh, uh, Cop and Midnight Run, did that. And, uh, and uh, you know, when, you, when it works in those situations, it really works well. Uh, and you feel so good that you've done it, and it's so good to let the actors do it because it, you know, it makes them feel freer and more open and not afraid. And um, it's it's great. Yeah, it's really great. Uh, I was wondering too about about Geely because um, I don't know if this is true or not, but from what I've read. I guess there was a, a different script from what was shot, or were there sort of changes made during a test screening and then things were reshot? Um, yes, yeah. The, the Gigli that came out theatrically is not the movie that was written, and it's not the movie that was originally shot. We had to reshoot the third act. So, uh, and we took stuff out, and the original version is a much better movie. Uh, how do you think the the third act uh, differs from from that original version? I mean, from the uh, from the version that's out now. You know, I'm not even sure if I'm at liberty to say. It's. I'll, let me just say this: it's radically different. Yeah. Is there any chance, possibly, that uh, that original version may ever come out on DVD or you know somehow be screened? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think so. I don't think there's a chance of that happening because we never mixed it. We didn't mix that version. Uh, so, you know, we didn't, 
you know, was shot on film. We didn't cut negative on that version. Yeah. Is uh, do you know if Martin Brest is working on any project at the moment, or? Uh... I hope he is. Uh, he did have an idea for a movie a while back, and I hope he's still pursuing it. Yeah, no, he's definitely a, a great talent, and uh, you know, we, oh yeah, he's wonderful. People hope to see more from him. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering too about uh, just kind of in a general sense um, when you're putting together a cut of a movie and you know that it's way too long than it should be and you have to start going in and compressing scenes or even taking out scenes. Uh, what do you think that... Do you give yourself sort of a, a longer first cut and then allow it, allow it to sort of dwindle down a little bit through cuts down the road, second, third, fourth cuts? Well, you know, uh, all movies are much longer in their first cut than they are in their final version. Um, and uh, I tell people, uh, if you just shake a movie, you can get 20 minutes out of it. Um, because everything is always too long. Because when you cut scenes, just as scenes, you cut them in the way they were shot and you cut them in a way in their longest form and what I say when I say that I don't mean in a boring way they're not boring they're interesting but they have a beginning and a middle and an end each scene just the way a full movie has a beginning a middle and an end and so when you're cutting your first cut of scenes that's the way they are and then when you put everything together you don't really need a beginning a middle and an end of each scene you know, you can cut into a scene a third of the way through and cut out of a scene what originally was before it really ends. And it just all has to do with pace and storytelling and acting and everything comes into it and the look of it and, um, and sound and music. They all have big impacts on movies. Um, so, uh, let's see, the first cut of Thin Red Line was five hours long. Wow. Um, uh, the first cut of Pee Wee's Big Adventure was probably not far off from what it ended up being. Um, it just depends. Each movie is different. Um, you know, most people, I think if you ask most people, I'm going to ask you, I'm, I'll ask you a question. How long do you think Days of Heaven is? Uh, it's an hour and a half, about. Yeah, 94 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I always feel like if you ask most people that, they say, oh, I don't know, two hours. <laughs> you know, but you never know. You know, what, um, and so, um, uh, it's hard to tell. Yeah. You know, you never, uh, but they all get cut down. Everything gets cut down. But in my opinion, they get cut down not because of a length that they should be or not because we can't put out a movie this long. It's because they come out at the length that they should be at. And you don't, it takes a while to find out what that length should be. <clears throat> However, I do think there's a big change that's going to occur in the movie industry. And that is with what's going on now, you know, with what they call binging, where people will download a TV series 
that you can do after it finishes its run. Yeah, with all the episodes, like, you know, 10 episodes at once, and people will just yes. sit for 10 hours and watch them all. Yeah. I think it's going to make it possible to make longer movies. Yeah, just because people's attention spans are, are willing to, to go to that, you know. And they're willing to stop. Yeah. And go do something else and come back to it. And also, I think the future of movies is going to be, movies are going to be viewed at home a lot of the time, not at the theater. So the more people buy bigger screen TVs, and, you know, and I think movies are going to be offered on demand on the same day that they open in theaters. So you're going to be able to watch it at home if you want. And in that, and as a result, I think you're going to be able to make a longer movie than distributors and exhibitors would prefer and because people are going to be willing to watch it. They may not watch it in one sitting, but they'll watch it. They'll watch it all, and they'll like it. Yeah, I think it'll just you know change the, the, the narrative storytelling process in a sense. Yeah, you know, how uh, we... I think it's all for the good, myself. Yeah. Um, the, the last director I wanted to uh, discuss with you was Tony Scott, um, yeah. who I believe you worked on uh, Days of Thunder, uh, at the second Beverly Hills Cop, yeah. uh, and also Top Gun, which you were yeah. nominated for an Oscar for. Yeah, well, Tony was a saintly human being. He was an absolutely wonderful, wonderful person, uh, a pleasure to work with, because uh, he was so sweet such a good person and um, loved more than anything to shoot movies he loved to shoot he didn't wasn't in love with the cutting of the movie as much as he was with the shooting of the movie but he was an absolute dear person and a wonderful person to work with and uh, and we had a great time and some of them were hard Top Gun was a hard movie to make because it wasn't until, well, the first thing we shot on Top Gun was a whole ground story. And then they went to shoot the flying sequences uh, at the uh, Navy jet fighter test uh, uh, area that the Navy has in Northern Nevada. And when we got there, Tony showed the script pages for all the flying scenes of the pilots and they said they read him and they said well, we can't do anything that's written here and he said what do you mean and they said well we can't do the stuff that's written here the planes don't do this we can't do this and they he said well what, what can you do so well we can fly forward and up and we can go down and turn to the right and left that's about it <laughs> And so uh, Tony called me and said, what are we going to do? And I because we had all these action scenes written where the planes would do very specific things. And, and they said they can't do any of that. And so I said, well, just go shoot for a day, see what happens. And uh, so he did, and it was boring. It was just a bunch of planes against the blue sky flying back and forth. So. I was pretty much shot from the ground. And, and I said, can we get up there in the air and shoot them plane to plane? He said, not really. We'll get blown right out of the sky when they go by us. You know, we can put cameras on the jets, but 
can't do much more than that. And because uh, you go up with a helicopter or a small plane, that it'll just if a jet, one of those jet fighters goes by you, you just get blown out of the sky. So we talked a lot about what can we do because we really needed to shoot those action scenes like we were shooting an action scene on the ground, you know, like a chase scene. You needed a plane going away from you, coming at you, uh, you know, you know, in a way like going around a corner and stuff like that. And uh, so we said, suppose we could find a top of a mountain or top of a hill maybe we could shoot from, and then we could get up there. He said, oh, let's try that. I'll go scout, let's say, I'll scout locations. So they, they drove all around the test site, the test area, the, the flying area that the Navy owned, and they found a hill. And they went up to the top of the hill and they said, this might work, and they had a couple pilots with them, and he said, can you fly right over us if we're on this hill? And they said, yeah. And he said, can you fly over us and away from us on this hill? Yep. Can you fly up the side of the hill like you're coming up from the ground? They said, yeah, we could do that too. So that's what they did. That's how we shot a tremendous amount of the flying footage. Yeah, and I think what also adds to that footage uh, is the music, which, uh, you know, really gives it such an energy when when people watch it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was wondering, too, just putting together action scenes and understanding geography of where people are, uh, is that ever an issue for you? Do you think about where people are in the sense of the whole scene when you're when you're cutting an action scene? Well, you know, uh, I have a feeling, a specific attitude about cutting action. Um, when was the last time you mowed down 40 people within a you know, with a submachine gun. Never. So you don't really know what it looks like to do that. So it's up to the filmmaker to show you what that looks like, which means that continuity isn't quite as important. Uh, And what's important is, do you believe what you're seeing? And that's really established by the filmmaker more than reality as opposed to when was the last time you had an argument with someone that you were very close with? You know what that looks like and you know what that feels like. So when you shoot a scene between people having an argument in a movie and you're an audience, if there's a false moment in it, you pick it up instantly because you know what it feels like to experience that. You don't know what it feels like to fly a jet fighter plane. So it's all up to us when we're making the movie, what it feels like. Is there a project uh, that you're working on now at the moment? I am. I'm uh, working on the new Warren Beatty movie. It's a Howard Hughes story? Yeah, well, sort of, yes. That's all I'll say about it, but yes. Any uh, any premiere date, I guess? Or I don't know if oh, that's been announced. We don't but... have a release date yet. Uh, that's that's going to be up to the distributor, I think, and Warren. And, but we don't know yet.